Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. One of our longtime listeners asked me several questions during the 4th of July weekend. One question, in 2021 podcasts last year, how could I have been so sure that high inflation followed by an inflation-fighting recession would grip our economy a year or more before these negative trends surfaced? A related question by the same person had to do with intimidation. Didn't I feel intimidated in late 2020 and throughout 2021 when the Federal Reserve as well as government economists consistently and constantly argued against lasting high inflation and against any recession? And the third question by another listener, where are we now in the substantial stock market decline you warned us about last year? Is it over? Today, I'll offer brief answers and explanations which will hopefully help you develop your own business insights uh, for the economy and financial markets. We'll start with the first two questions and leave the stock market question as our final subject today. There's no magic involved in reading the tea leaves, but much relies on taking data analysis to the next level. What do I mean? The next level, to me, means trying to anticipate the feedback loops of specific data trends. Today, we'll use an example of the U.S. housing market in our feedback loop discussion. The U.S. housing market is not only a key economic segment, but it provides insights into future money, supply, and inflation. I'll share important economic relationships today that rarely appear in reports or in the press, but importantly, determine future money supply, inflation, and interest rate trends. Before we start, let's appreciate that our July 4th celebrations are closing in on the 250th year of the highly successful democratic experiment structured by a handful of patriots who laid the foundation for so many freedoms we take for granted. We work to make continuing improvements as nothing is perfect, at least for the very long term, but a near 250-year history of building the strongest nation on earth from a debt-ridden revolution must be the greatest accomplishment in modern history. It's certainly up there. Hopefully, our Business Insights podcasts, although modest in scale, are steps in the direction of continuously improving our economic choices your economic choices, and lifestyle qualities. Okay, let's dig into housing from a perspective that I would bet you haven't heard before. Can we agree that inflation is a money phenomenon? It's about incomes, prices, and purchasing power. For example, low- and middle-income renters are experiencing 15% or more increases in rent escalations now and 8-15% to increases in food, fuel, and entertainment costs, but their incomes are only increasing an average of 3 to 6%. Those who received stimulus payments and saved part of them have now overall drawn down these savings, plus moving into their long-term pre-COVID savings. Lifestyle and future security are now victims of inflation. The secondary effect includes cutbacks in purchasing by families, the related lower sales and profits of retailers and manufacturers, with job cutting starting by businesses to survive the many supply chain and labor cost increases rippling through the entire economy. Don't worry, 
I'm not going into monetary theories here. I just want to provide the context that rapidly increasing money creation versus the supplies of what money can buy creates higher prices, inflation. Likewise, decreases in the amount of money result in our decreased ability to buy the goods and services offered in the marketplace, deflation. Let's start here. Would it surprise to consider that housing trends are a most important key for understanding total money supply? I've not seen textbooks that really tie these together, but the intimidation question aside, let's consider how they relate and more importantly, how they can generate a red flag for upcoming economic cycle issues. Over the past two plus years, our money supply has skyrocketed for three important reasons. Two of these reasons, the Federal Reserve actions to strongly intervene in financial markets by buying mortgage-related securities, government debt, and corporate bonds, that's one, and the Federal Reserve buying the majority of newly issued government debt to finance congressional overspending, that's two, are included in many of our past podcasts. The third reason is really important and possibly as important as the first two, our U.S. residential real estate cycle all by itself. Let's quickly review how money is created before we move on. Money gets loaned into existence. Treasury bonds are created and money is created from the Federal Reserve Bank. The federal government is borrowing and the Federal Reserve is creating the money to buy the government debt. Now, as an aside, the interest on this debt is not created by the Federal Reserve, or anyone else for that matter. So it's relatively straightforward for the Federal Reserve to create new money. But as interest rates go up and the government debt interest expense goes up because higher interest rates and more government borrowing, those interest expense items have to be met by earnings of the economy. That's an aside. Money also gets created when commercial banks loan more money into existence by creating loans. And this relates to fractional reserve lending. And actually, this is the bulk of where our new money comes from. It's actually not the Federal Reserve. It's actually the banking system using the fractional reserve lending. And who do commercial banks lend to? In prior podcasts, we discussed the Federal Reserve's historical level of money creation. In brief, the New York Fed merely goes to its computers and makes a few keystroke entries that essentially adds monies to its account it keeps with large money center banks. Yes, it's really that simple. The U.S. Federal Reserve can create money out of thin air by keystrokes. Through these accounts, the Fed buys a large part of the debt issued by the U.S. Treasury to support the substantial overspending of Congress. Overspending for new listeners refers to the difference between the federal government tax collections and government spending. In recent years, this overspending has resulted and continues to result in new government debt being added at one, two, or three trillion dollars each year. Now, here's the secret sauce of this podcast, which I bet you haven't really considered before. There is an even larger amount of money creation that relates directly to our commercial banking system. The banks themselves can create even more new money than the Fed creates. This new money is directly tied to the real estate cycle and to the fractional banking reserve requirements. Now stay with me. I promise to keep this discussion at a higher, more understandable level. It's really important as it will help you develop your own insights for what's ahead. 
The vast majority of money comes into existence when a commercial bank extends a loan. And as I asked before, who do they lend to? 27% of bank lending goes to other financial corporations. 50% goes to mortgages, on the average across many years, mainly on existing residential property. Only 8% goes to high-cost credit, including overdrafts and credit cards, and just 15% goes to the non-financial corporations like the manufacturers or the productive economy? I'll repeat the key point. Half of all U.S. commercial bank lending is accounted for by mortgages, primarily residential housing mortgages. It is mortgages that importantly determine the increases and decreases in U.S. money supply. Now here's how it works. As demand for housing goes up, mortgages go up. And mortgages can only go up if banks create new money to loan to the home buyers. Yes, the banks create new money. Some of you may recall the fractional reserve system in your old Econ 101 class. Don't worry, we're not going to go through the details. But here's a, a real high-level summary. If you deposit $1,000 into your bank account, the bank, or the banking system, needs to only keep 10% of that $1,000 or $100 in reserves. They lend out the remaining $900, which generates $900 in a new deposit by the person receiving the money, the borrower, the next borrower. The bank receiving the $900, in turn, needs to only keep 10% of that $900 of this new loan or deposit. So they keep $90 of the $900 in reserves, and they can lend out the remaining $810. And so it goes. And your $1,000 deposit can ultimately create as much as $10,000 in new money. So no new money was printed in this process, but the banking system itself created up to 10 times the amount of purchasing power by creating new money through loaning out their deposits. Think about the past 10 or so years, or even the past four or five years. Money supply has skyrocketed and so have home prices. Since the 0809 Great Recession, home construction has not met the requirements of emerging new homeowners, which we'll cover in a minute. The record money supply created by the banks for new mortgages at higher home prices and arguably have fed the higher home prices are in addition to the Federal Reserve money creation. And it's this real estate relationship I'm asking you to think about. Some may ask, well, what happens when the home buying boom goes away and all that money creation begins to reverse? The summary would be to look at Japan. Japan has been experiencing no population growth, and the Bank of Japan has continued to print new Japanese yen to buy their large rollovers of local and national government debt. Japan is dealing with inflation, historical inflation, by creating deflation. The demographics in Japan are creating deflation as there are fewer and fewer home buyers. The population has been and it continues to decline over time. And real estate has been in decline for 20 or 30 years in Japan. If you really want to understand the end result without going into all the nitty-gritty calculations, I would just recommend looking at Japan. Real estate is the driver of inflation and deflation. That's a big statement, but I'll say it again. Real estate is the driver of inflation and deflation. We can get signals from the real estate market before an overall economic crash occurs. We can look at house prices 
And as some of you may recall, back in 2006, 2007, house prices went on a plateau or slightly down from years of increases. And the secondary effects actually made a number of the mortgage securities worthless for many other reasons. And that's a whole separate topic. But if you look at the real estate price curves increases, we're beginning to level out and some markets go down now. Inventory in a number of markets, not all markets, is going up. Days on market is going up as we speak. Again, not all markets. Housing starts is where inflation comes from. And housing starts are still anemic right now, along with the other variables I mentioned. And back in 08, 09, we did have a real estate crash. And because of general shortages, the likelihood of a crash in real estate over the next year or so is kind of remote, in my view. It's kind of remote. But the real estate cycle itself is going to be a leading indicator to us, in my view. Because during the boom cycle, which we've been experiencing, families leverage up. They borrow more. They accept higher mortgages as a percent of value of the home. And now the mortgage payments, particularly variable rate mortgages, are heading up considerably. And new home purchases have quite significantly higher monthly payments than they did a year ago. But we have been leveraging up. Credit has been expanding. And now we're at the tipping point of deleveraging. And we're at the tipping point of deleveraging for a whole bunch of reasons. I don't want to try to order them in priority, but I think you have a feeling for what they are. And one important reason is the inflation rate going up, which does drop long-term bond prices all by itself. Why would you invest in a 2% long-term bond if inflation is 8% a year? When people catch on to that and the large money funds are looking at that, they demand higher interest rates in the long term. And in the short term, the Federal Reserve, as everybody knows, has been increasing interest rates very substantially, even though it's not nearly enough to control inflation. But the system can survive with inflation, and we've been surviving. However, inflation cuts the lifestyle and purchasing power of almost all families. The system really cannot survive with deflation. And we saw that during the Great Depression. With chronic deflation, the system collapses. And that's one reason I'm going to make some observations about the Federal Reserve and their future policy. Because the secondary effect of increasing interest rates to a level high enough to actually impact the 8% plus inflation we're having now, I would argue it's more 12% or higher. But in any event, to move interest rates up to control that, interest rates would have to be in the 10 to 15% area, as they were back in the 1980 area. History proves that money creators default through inflation and not deflation. The government revenues need inflation to work. Inflation places everybody in a higher tax bracket. And during deflation, as tax collections drop, particularly local governments, default. So the deflation, the long-term implications of deflation are going to be a severe handicap for the Federal Reserve. Think of the market cycle in four areas. We have the recovery, which we have been in, and an expansion, which we have been in in terms of the pre-inflation numbers, where we've gone through the real estate cycle of leveraging up, 
We've had declining vacancy rates, but we've had no new construction during the expansion phase. And phase three is typically hypersupply, which is increasing vacancy, which is a result of new construction. We have a lot of new construction in the pipeline now in many markets becoming into the market over the next year. And the fourth phase is the uh, real estate recession, where vacancy rates begin to go up again as more housing completions are made. Deleveraging occurs as fewer mortgages are negotiated. The money supply trends down. And then we are in the recessionary environment. I'm covering a lot of territory qu- quickly, but I, and I apologize, it has to be this quick. But if we look at the median sales price of homes sold in the United States, the Federal Reserve has a series you can look at, and it has the last seven recessions. And you can see during the recession, the home prices, typically best case or stable, worst case, back in 08, 09, prices were down close to 30%. So a recession is triggered by uh, the real estate cycle, and it's also a victim of the ensuing recession. What is the root of all of this? Basically, uh, we can go back and look at the baby boomers. The increases in the U.S. population back in the 1940s resulted in a large amount of new consumers, new house purchasers in the late 60s, 1970. We saw that. And then we saw the next secondary effect or tertiary effect of their children being born in the late 1980s and early 1990s and add 25 or so years to that. We get the boom that we've had in housing now. But the population is rapidly going down now. So the next boom is much likely to be much further off than 25 years. And we are in a population-inspired decline as well as an interest rate-inspired decline. And we can see that with U.S. foreclosures. Foreclosures, particularly during the stimulus years, the COVID years, were down substantially. Now they're beginning to ramp up pretty significantly. The home equity of homeowners across the United States at the last bubble in 2006-2007, the home equity values were $14 trillion of net home equity. And during the ensuing years to the 2010-2011 low period, that $14 trillion dropped to about $8 trillion, which is a very substantial drop. In recent years, it's gone from $8 trillion up to $21 trillion. So the next cyclical drop, which may not occur until 2023, can be really substantial and have a substantial impact on the consumers and the majority of Americans. So we've been in a seller's market for a number of years, since 2012 or so. But all the indicators indicate a strong seller's market, but that's changing rapidly. To look at a buyer's market, just look at 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010. And that's kind of what we're morphing into. In summary, at a very high level, demographics is the ultimate driver for real estate demand. Real estate demand drives up home prices and housing starts. Housing starts is where new loans come into the system, driving a leveraging up of credit and inflation. And the new real estate loaning or lending gets money into the hands of those who can spend. Where are we now? And this is going to be a quick summary. The housing market is rapidly weakening, but will take a number of months to have its business cycle impact. Watch carefully the speed at which home prices come down across the U.S. markets. There are a number of companies that measure this. If we continue to see average days on market skyrocket up, 
and offers per listing continue to drop, we'll see a strong recession impact sooner rather than later this year, in my view. If the metrics just mentioned decline slowly, then we can expect a recessionary environment to hit in 2023. I'm talking about a strong, no argument, recessionary environment. The Federal Reserve so far is increasing interest rates significantly, but not nearly enough to control inflation. Now they're at a crossroads as they could generate a really deep recession or depression by continuing to increase short-term interest rates at one half percent or more in each of their future meetings. My bet is they will not move interest rates up to past levels to drop inflation. Inflation is going to be with us for a very long time as a result. Inflation will have an impact on government interest costs, which are $450 billion plus per year now, and they could very well go to a trillion dollars, which is not sustainable with the U.S. government or their new debt issuance. Fed knows that. Department of Treasury, they know that. But the impact on government interest costs and private business borrowing would be unsustainable by taking interest rates up to the highs around 1980 when inflation was impacted. In addition to the aforementioned, the mortgage market impact would simply be too severe. I don't know if many of you could imagine what a 9 or 10% mortgage would do to the housing market. We actually did see that back in 1980. So, recession? In my opinion, we're in one now. As I've argued in past podcasts, savings rates are back to historical lows, with most Americans finding it almost impossible to pay the record inflationary costs of food, fuel, rent, and discretionary expenses. Something has to give, and it is giving. All the above argues that the stock market decline is not over. It may, in fact, be less than halfway. Rallies will occur, in my view, if the Fed pauses the quantitative easing, and I suspect they will from time to time, as more trillions of dollars of U.S. new and existing debt rollovers have to come to market in the next 6 to 12 months. The Fed won't allow a depression, but could generate one by keeping on its present path from now until the end of the year. In brief, the cushion for the stock market is gone. Corporate earnings are being revised down. Large corporations are starting cutbacks, which is one of the few areas they can directly save on an inflationary environment. So for the rest of the year, be cautious, be conservative, and protect your family's capital and lifestyle by not taking on a new house or additional new debt, if you can at all help it. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.